Hi, and welcome to The Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist, and I'm the online editor at The Strad. Violinist Rachel Podger is no stranger to the pages of The Strad magazine, having featured in several articles and reviews throughout her prolific career. Ahead of her busy upcoming season, which sees her as artist in focus at London's King's Place, artistic director of Brecon Baroque Festival, a recording release of the Goldberg Variations, plus principal guest directorships with Tafel Music in future seasons, Rachel makes her first appearance in the podcast to speak about the tools of her trade, including how she met her 1739 Passerini violin, other instruments she's met throughout her career, plus an explosive anecdote about a gut E-string. Here's Rachel Podger. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. All week in my head, I've been calling this, instead of the Strad podcast, I've been calling it the Strad podcast because of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> so we're here to talk about your instrument and your bow. You play a 1739 Passerini violin. And this is just a chance for you to share a little bit about your relationship with the tools of your trade. So first of all, tell me about your violin and your bow. When did you acquire it? Have you been playing on these tools for a long time? Yes, yes. So I know my violin very well and I'm very pleased to say that actually belongs to me, which which is not a given with with yeah. instruments and in fact because Pazzarini by the way it's sometimes uh, called Pezzarini with an e and sometimes mm. with an a so on the Terizio website it's actually noted with an a anyway that's just by the way yeah it's like Stradivari Stradivarius and, yes. and like Latin or Italian mm. different versions yeah so I found that violin 25 odd years ago probably a little bit longer now in a shop in London, in Stoke Newington, a shop called Bridgewood and Knightsett. Oh, yeah. And yes, yeah, fantastic shop run by Gary Bridgewood and Tom Knightsett, who are interested in, in kind of historical setup and old fine violins. And I've been looking for some time. I've actually been playing a, a really lovely copy of uh, Strad, a, a modern copy by someone called Roland Ross, his Baroque violins, so all, all Baroque setup uh, instruments that he made in the 80s. They were extremely popular during the 80s and popularised by people like Monica Huggett and Catherine McIntosh and Alison Berry and all of the players in the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of bit of a popular thing to have. It was like the new thing, you know, the new Baroque instrument. And it really fantastic instruments, very even sounding and bright, bright sound. And you could spot them a mile off because they're all quite orange (laughs) in look. So I actually bought one of those instruments off a colleague of mine, uh, Pavlo Biznozuk, when I was actually still studying. So that was kind of early 90s. And... That served me really well. It spoke really well and it had a beautiful warm sound and it, it was especially good at, I don't know, just speaking kind of lots of kind of fast notes, especially for, for kind of the Stilus Fantasticus of the 17th century, mm. uh, that kind of start, early style. So I enjoyed playing that. And then when I was approached by Channel Classics to record the complete Bach, I then kind of thought, oh, OK, I probably need something with just a little bit more depth in the sound and a little bit more kind of history to it, if you know what I mean, kind of in, in the sound, just something that's already experienced a bit of life 
uh, under the hands of other players. You know, that, that kind of sense that you get when you pick up a violin, you think, oh, OK, this has been places. This is played in a, uh, you know, in a church or in a hall or this has been worked hard, you know. That kind of sense I was looking for. So I, yeah, basically went on the search and I was just looking wherever I was, you know, wherever I was on tour. I was touring a lot of just all over the place of uh, America, Australia, uh, the way you do when you're a young professional. Well, back then. <laughs> and there's a lot of Baroque work around. And I was doing a lot of chamber music toured a lot with my group back then the Palladian Ensemble and also Europe so so wherever I was I always went to the the luthier the violin dealers where everyone else was going to you know to the cafes or looking around the shops or looking at sightseeing or something going you're going pub. violin shopping yeah <laughs> I, I went by you exactly sometimes I'd take someone with me which is just really useful just to hear someone else play because it's very different when you play a new especially a new instrument under your ear yeah. uh, it sounds very different than of course if you just stand back and hear someone else play although they always say it's the player don't they not the violin so slightly confusing all of that but <laughs> you do get a kind of another impression of the same instrument actually the process of doing that was really interesting I learned so much just about not just about violins and how I respond to them but also how they change you know, just within 10 minutes of playing or something. So yeah. so if you have five violins lined up and you're not told what they are, because that's, that's the thing, you know, you're not given the name or the value or anything so that you just have a complete kind of carte blanche kind of in your mind. You pick up the first one, you think, oh, okay, this is whatever, whatever it is. You play it for 10 minutes and then you put it down, you pick up the next one, you kind of try and clear your expectations so you move on to the next one, and so, so you go through them all. You have different impressions, which you just kind of try and assimilate in, in, in your head, or you talk about to your friend or something. And then you go back to number one, <laughs> and it sounds yeah. completely different. It's like so much has changed within ah, that time. Oh You've already goodness. been on such a journey, yeah. I know. So that's actually, I mean, that's quite confusing, but it's also very revealing of all sorts of things, isn't it, about your own playing and just how you adjust to an instrument what you do over time when you try lots of different instruments, all, all sorts of stuff. I'd always use the same bow, of course, you know, because the bow makes such a big difference to the sound of an instrument. That's kind of your control there. So do you feel like your instrument has evolved with you, your sound and and your playing style throughout the 20 years that you've owned it? Well, I hope, hope so. <laughs> I guess it must have somehow. It's a, it's a kind of uh, evolving together, really. So definitely a partnership that you you undertake together I always like to think about it being a conversation so yeah. that you're conversing with your instrument you're not kind of just impressing what you want onto it you're actually listening to it and seeing what it will give you at different times and so with that kind of more kind of open-minded approach I think it can reveal things to you that you hadn't maybe thought of or expected just like music does in fact you know, with that kind of open approach, you can find all sorts of different colours and different ways of expressing things. Yeah, so you need to have the right instrument that will allow you to do that because I guess likewise you don't want to have an instrument that is impressing itself on you. That's very true and that can really, that can be the case with certain instruments mm -hmm. where there doesn't seem to be so much room for subtlety within the sound but even possibly within one stroke especially in the Baroque repertoire, there is a need for, for shaping the sound. And not just on long notes, but on short notes. Just everything is about the shape. 
really, not just in the kind of sense of the hierarchy in the bar, but also just in the sense of the phrase and going up the hill with the register going up and then coming down again and swooping down with the register coming down and kind of reflecting those movements within the individual shapes of the bow and the sound, but also within the, the larger shapes too, of course. But in order to do that, the violin needs to be flexible enough or kind of prepared to go along with with those changes. And it's quite interesting. So some instruments, they don't seem to have that kind of malleability and just flexibility. So you, you, you try and kind of coax something out and they're going, no, 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 I want, I'm going to do the sound. <laughs> I'm not going to do, I'm not going to go along with that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Actually, I've been very lucky to, to have um, had the opportunity to play a, a few strats, not just for 10 minutes, but for actually a little bit longer, for, <laughs> for maybe a month or so. The Royal Academy of Music in London, as you know, have, have the most incredible collection including some strads, and um, I played two uh, of their different strads, uh, one called uh, Crespi, which I played for a recording of the Mozart Symphonica Chitante, along with Pavlo Viznozik, and he also played a, a viola strad. That was a, a rare and wonderful experience. So we, we practised a lot together, obviously, before the whole project started, and kind of jointly discovered what these strads were telling us what they were doing and it was an interesting experience because it would wasn't always what you expected you know especially I remember in the slow movement you know that yearning tune in the symphonic concerto incredible incredible melancholy in, in that tune and I really wanted a lot of depth in the sound and sometimes some days it was fine sometimes I would do it other days it just thought no 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 I'm not I'm not gonna do that today. I have heard this about strads before because I think I've spoken to enough guests on this podcast and yeah. interviewed several people to say that sometimes it just takes a little bit of understanding with the strad to, to really know what the strad wants them to do. So it's a bit of a delicate dance in that way. It's it's not like I'm just going to do everything that my heart desires on this instrument, but it is suggesting some particular roots for me. That's the, so true. Yes, it's like there are some grooves that are kind of already inlaid mm. and it's like you need to kind of find that groove within yeah. the sound or whatever technically you need to do to just adjust, to coax the, the best sound out of the instrument. It's so interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I thought I'd mention that, you know, you've got a really busy schedule coming up. For example, you know, your residency at King's Place, which is mm -hmm. commencing 21st yes. of September. Yeah. And you're also artistic director of... The Brecken Baroque Festival. You play a lot of Baroque music, a lot yes. of Bach. You've even been known to say everything starts with Bach. So, you know, with that in mind, and we've spoken so much about the role of the instrument, the role of the bow, and all of this, what's your ideal setup for playing this type of music? You know, we've talked about the instrument, but are there particular little tweaks that you like mm. to have in place? Yes. So, the setup on this uh, wonderful Pesarini is, is actually a bit of a hybrid setup but I would go as far as saying that every setup is a hybrid setup there isn't really a baroque setup or a classical setup or uh, maybe there is a modern setup I don't know enough yeah about because that, I suppose this was such an evolutionary process you know the development of the violin setup that it's not like there were clear goalposts like now we're going to stop using the baroque setup and we're going to move on to this that's it yes just because the century changed right right now okay <laughs> new century we're going to have a different 
you know, yeah, flick a switch. Or, that's yeah. right. Different music, different sound. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, all a very kind of evolutionary and things happening at different times in, in specific to different places. I think that's what we sometimes forget is that it didn't all happen at the same time. But, mm. you know, places were much, much further apart in people's minds and physically as well, because you couldn't travel yeah. uh, so quickly to places, you know. So, so you're much more involved in where you lived and where you were and what was happening around you. So if there was a certain pitch in that area, then that, that's what you did. And then if you, you, you kind of travelled over the mountain to another village, um, yeah. which was a long way, especially if it was over a mountain, you know, somewhere in Switzerland or Austria or Italy um, or France or Spain, in fact, then you might find a different pitch and you might have to kind of completely, you know, change your setup a little bit. Or uh, I'm sure they, they, they might have had different bridges in their pockets and possibly different strings. Oh, they might have t- kind of uh, found something on the way, you know, a bit of gut lying around. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> Shut that on. To see how that sounds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, no, of course, no, that's not going to happen, is it? Is it a my, bit I of mean, gut it, lying around. You did mention you've got sheep outside of your house earlier. That's right, yes. I mean, the, the art of gut string making is, is such a skill, such yes. a fine art in a different world altogether quite gory <laughs> yeah I don't really know enough about what I've read and uh, I've never actually been to a workshop it's still something I'd really like to do to actually just witness it and see firsthand how, how it's all that it's it's a long process uh cleaning and and treating the guts scraping and, and and drying and yeah uh, actually I think we had a photo gallery in our mm-hmm. latest accessory supplement and that came out in July and I mean, the pictures are slightly harrowing, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, it's a very, very long process. It's very, very long term, a lot of winding. And nowadays, you know, a lot of technology involved to make sure that you have this uniformity of the product. Exactly. And that that is exactly what has changed so much um, mm. over time, this uniformity, because, of course, there's a, a completely different kind of demand. And it's a global demand, of course. And so that the making of gut strings has, has changed so much. It's been more refined. And there are also players who've kind of gone back to the, the more unrefined kind of quality of gut strings. Um, so there's lots of different kinds of gut strings out there on the market. And it's, it's really fun to actually experiment with lots of different types. What do you prefer to use? Do you like to use the ones that have winding or ones that are completely natural? I tend to go for the most natural ones. I, I don't particularly like the, uh, the varnished type. They can be really useful in hot weather. So for, for summers when there's perspiration and a, a lot more humidity around, uh, especially in an enclosed hall or in a church when it's been hot and it's then rained and there's a whole load of condensation within the building that can be extremely difficult for the instrument it really really affects not just the player but really affects the instrument how do you find it when you're traveling and touring to different climates for example you're playing in one place which is quite humid and then you're going somewhere which is a really dry concert hall do you find yourself just having to make do do you have any particular strategies or do you change your strings do you do you make any tweaks to your your it depends if you've got a yeah when the concert is if the concert is that night then you'll Mm. just you just need to weigh it up how bad is it how much kind of frizzing out literally of the particularly the e-string often just gets rather hairy the scary e-string it's always scary putting e-strings on isn't it especially a gut one (laughs) you get used to it (laughs) yeah just just think of that like flinching as you're slowly winding it up please don't step in my face yeah yeah 
That's right. Yes, yes, we've all been there, haven't we? <laughs> Things snapping in your face. No, it can be quite painful, actually, especially if it happens mid-play. It's happened oh, gosh. lots of times. I mean, luckily, not that many times during a performance, but it has. One that sticks in my mind was, was actually my first concert with Trevor Pinnock and the English concert when I got the leading job, uh, late 90s. And I think it was in France. Yes, it was in Ombrelle, in a beautiful abbey. And we were playing um, Concerto Grosso by, I think it was Avison. And I could see that my E string was fizzle, starting to fizzle in the first movement. I thought, okay, right, let's just stay cool. Right, let's just do the stuff and just uh, see how you go. Just maybe not load too much pressure on there. And anyway, second movement, fine. Nice kind of solo tune for me. So, so I was slightly on hooks, but it was okay. Third movement, typical kind of 3-8, kind of dancey with one bar solo, one bar tutti. And it was really going. And I could see it unravelling. And so in the tutti bar, I would literally yank up the peg, because of course you don't have any fine tunes, you know, just, yeah. just the E-string peg, just hoping that it would be yeah, enough, a little bit yeah. sharper. Yeah, exactly. And then play the next bar, <laughs> sometimes with an open E. And then when it got really bad, of course, you need to make do, you go into the A-string or something. Anyway, I got through the movement. It was kind of okay and without too much um, awful tuning stuff happening. Got to the end of the movement. We stand up, we bow and everything. A little bit of quiet after the applause. And then, of course, it takes its moment and goes, bang, you know, huge <laughs> clatter. And it's hilarious. Everyone looks at me, you know, it's that kind of slightly wow. embarrassing moment. The audience kind of collectively do a kind of huge intake of breath, kind of, <gasps> and then in the front row, you hear this kind of under the breath, kind of, ooh la la. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Just, wow think about that a lot it's the kind of thing that nowadays just goes totally viral when that kind of stuff happens yes, in concerts that's right yes yeah, that, yeah. that was before <laughs> smartphones then. so yes no one was there filming that i guess you just have to find a way to keep going right i mean as they say the yeah. show must go on yeah yeah you just work it out you just have to have to keep a cool head but i mean much worse things have happened to other people you know for instance where the tail gut which is the, oh, the piece gosh, of yeah. gut that holds the the tail in, in the tailpiece, yeah. The tailpiece, literally in place. Mm. So it's a very thick piece of gut, which is tied under the button mm. in a, a very thick knot. And it's pretty secure and the edges are burnt off, you know, so it's, it's not going to fray. But if that goes, which can happen in your lifetime, that that is much, much more dramatic because it's huge bang because, of course, it holds the whole tension yeah. in place. Everything. You know, I mean, your bridge goes, goes, your string yeah, goes. Everything, you know. it just kind of explodes. Yeah. Explodes. Some people, you know, open their violin case in the morning before about to do their day's work and and, uh, and it looks like a disaster. <laughs> you know, what, what's happened? It kind of looks like it's exploded, hasn't it? Because the ba- basically the one thing holding it all together is just, mm. is just gone. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there is a video online of someone's oh, yes. tailpiece just exploding Probably. in the middle of a concerto and then... You know, what can you do? <laughs> that's it. You grab someone else's instrument yeah. or something. And luckily it hasn't happened to me, but, but that's much more likely to happen yeah, yeah, with a uh, Brock setup, up, well, an older setup. Yeah. I feel like we could talk about this for ages because it's just so interesting. Thank you so much for your insights on your historical setup and your instrument. It's really, really great to hear your experiences and also, you know, somewhat disasters that you've <laughs> funny stories yeah funny funny stories and anecdotes because i'm sure that that's happened to many people in the Mm -hmm. past so it's it's nice to hear about but rachel thanks for being on the podcast today (laughs) it's a pleasure thank you for having me 
that concludes our inaugural podcast with Rachel Podger. She begins her King's Place residency on the 21st of September 2023, so all the best to her. I went to King's Place recently for the London Podcast Festival and Rachel's face is literally everywhere already. You won't miss it. And don't forget to check out thestrad.com where you'll find the latest news, articles and reviews on all things to do with string playing. If you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. We've got 50% off an online subscription for students, and if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days, start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or rating. It will help other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.